welcome to the Common Cause for Sustainability podcast for the University of Washington Bothell and Cascadia College. My name is Belle, and I'll be your host for the fourth episode of Growing Up Green, an environmental mini-series focusing on sustainability and environmental efforts to bring a worldly perspective to our joint campus communities and inspire action around common sustainability causes. In my last episode, I interviewed Rachel Amin, a Geography Syracuse PhD fellow who discussed the impacts of COVID-19 on the coastal town of Newburyport, how the tourist industry impacts the environment, and the importance of individual action. This episode, I'll be joined by Leah Rubinsky, a doctoral candidate at UW, currently completing a dissertation on Caribbean women's writing. She has spent the last two years teaching environmental communication courses in the program of the environment at UW. We'll be going over the importance of environmental education in K through 12, as well as at the college level, and how we can utilize these skills in our lives. Leah mentions a variety of important environmental authors throughout the episode, whose websites and books I'll link in the episode's show notes. I hope you enjoy it. Oh, thank you so much for coming onto the podcast. Um, would you like to start out by introducing yourself and your work or current research? Absolutely. So I just want to thank you, Belle, first of all, for having me on. This is really exciting. So my name is Leah Rubinsky. I'm a doctoral candidate in the Comparative Literature Department at the University of Washington. And my current research looks at themes of mothering, place, and migration in Caribbean and Latin American women's writing. And so a little bit more specifically, what that means is I look at um, Colombian and Haitian, actually, women's novels. During one of our previous emails, you wrote a bit about being passionate about teaching and college writing and a bit about composition. Uh, Do you think that you could tell us a bit more about your interest in education and maybe how you'd encourage students to write about the environment? Yeah, for sure. So here's how I came to college writing and composition. Um, So as a PhD student, you get to teach a lot of classes. Yeah. And so um, for the past six or seven years, I have just found myself teaching a lot of composition and writing classes, you know, in the comparative literature department, but also in the English department and most recently in the program on the environment. So somewhere in the middle of teaching all of these writing classes, I kind of fell in love with college writing and, and teaching students about composition. I think for me, it's been really interesting. Students so often have a lot of apprehension around writing. Mm -hmm. And I get it. Because I mean, writing is hard. It's really hard. Yeah, I have those same apprehensions. You know, it's not I do a lot of writing. And it's not like I come to a writing project. And I'm like, yeah, I I know exactly what's going to happen. Writing is just generally hard. Mm-hmm. But I get a lot of satisfaction from, you know, supporting students to discover that they are, in fact, good writers and they have a lot of important things to say and important perspectives to bring to the issues that they're trying to, to write about. So in my environmental writing classes, my students and I get to think critically about the role of writing in communicating complex you know, overwhelming environmental problems. And so in those classes, I really encourage students to think creatively about, okay, what kind of persuasive writing strategies um, can I use in in writing and composition to really engage my readers, you know, um, so that I can communicate this environmental topic 
but also maybe so that I can uh, incite action around this topic, like, you know, motivate my readers or the people I'm communicating with to, to care about this environmental problem and to, to do something about it. Absolutely. Yeah. Environmental advocacy, being able to write and communicate that is one of the first steps that people really take. That's very important. I, okay, I have two different questions that I want to ask at the same time, but I've been wondering, um, most of your background is in English. How did, was it just like by chance that you got into teaching environmentalism or? Good question. Yeah. So um, most of my background is in, it is, it's in literature, it's in composition. Mm -hmm. um, it is, so it was sort of by chance that I got into, into the program in the environment. However, I will say that the course that I was asked to teach, it's the Environment 200 course, it's called Environmental Communication. It is at its core a writing course. So we are definitely, we are looking at writing, we're using writing, um, and we're thinking about writing primarily. And then we just kind of, we apply that to the theme of the environment. And that way I felt like it, it wasn't that much of a stretch for me to, to kind of to teach that class in particular. And then from there, I kind of developed this passion for that course in particular. And that made me kind of just go down mm -hmm. the rabbit hole of reading more and more environmental texts and environmental communication and how do you do that and what that means. But initially you're right. It was sort of, it was sort of by chance. Yeah. I feel like it's kind of nice to have that kind of background going into it though, because your class is kind of unique where it's inherently literature and English focused, but it's about the environment and it's a required course, at least in my case, for the environmental studies major. So I think that it's really important for environmental students to go in and have that sort of different perspective where it's very literature focused, because one issue that I see at least is that we tend to come from the same background in the same place and then we all have the same opinions and we talk about the same things over and over again. So having that like literature focused class is like a really nice change of pace. For sure. Yeah. Yeah. And I think one of the things you might be getting at, too, is this idea of interdisciplinarity. So it's this idea, of, you know, when it comes to environmental problems, we they are so overwhelming and complex that we need we need a really interdisciplinary way to think about them. So thinking about environmental problems from a science perspective is really important. But we also need to think about, okay, scientists gathering information, how are they gonna communicate it in a way that actually does something, right? And so in that way, we need to bring so many different disciplines together to make the difference, I think, in, in really, um, yeah, in tackling environmental problems. And that kind of leads me into the next question that I had, which is kind of based off of your personal teaching experience. How do you think that the way that we teach about the environment impacts younger generations? And what do you think that we could do differently? Like whether it's at UW or just kind of in a broader perspective? Yeah. Oh, I like this question so much. Let me preface it by saying, I am definitely not a K through 12 environmental education expert, nothing like that. Um, so I can only kind of tell you from what I'm seeing at the college level. But from that vantage point, I will say that I think environmental education should be something that is taught systematically to students. And I, I believe from a younger age than maybe it is being taught right now. Mm -hmm. I just think that so often in my classes, 
young people come into college who maybe didn't get that comprehensive environmental education. And so they're learning maybe for the first time, Mm -hmm. really how bad it is, you know, the extent to which climate change is completely irreversible, um, just to give one example. And so I think it, it hits students really hard in that way. I, I think if we, if we started younger and we had more, and you know, um, honest, but also age appropriate, but certainly I think that really starting young and then as students get to be in high school, they're definitely, I think, mature enough to understand that these environmental issues are are really critically important and that the stakes are really high, you know, for, for doing something about it. Um, and then the last thing I'll say too is to, to your question about what might we be able to do differently in terms of environmental education, I think that I'm going to bring that word back again that I used, interdisciplinarity. I think one of the problems with environmental education is that, how do I put this? The dots maybe are not being connected. So we might, because education is so siloed, you know, there's biology is over here in this corner, and then we have the English department is over there, and then everyone is in their little, um, you know, I don't want to use war terminology, but everyone is in their little sort of silos. Let's just use silos. Or bubbles. Um, <laughs> they're bubbles. Perfect. I like that much better. But so, so for example, we might learn about cancer in a biology class, learn about um, carcinogens, you know, chemical carcinogens in a chemistry class or in a history class, we might learn about this incident where there was exposure to chemical carcinogens and then, um, something bad happened, but we rarely bring them together, you know, and connect the dots in a class or a course where we're like, these are, this is environmental degradation and this is environmental justice. And this, you know, it's like it, it involves looking, it involves an understanding that environmental problems are not just biology, chemistry, history, they're all those things together. Mm -hmm. Um, They're racism. They are, you know, um, you know, thinking about how to how to solve environmental problems is about thinking interdisciplinarily, interdisciplinarily. Mm -hmm. Tough word. (laughs) Yeah, no, that makes a lot of sense. It's like um, in one of my other classes, there's also uh, I can't remember what the diagram is called, but there's the three circles you have like the big circle for environment and then you have like a smaller circle for economic or social and then a smaller one so like environmental economic and social issues are all interconnected but people like to think of them as separate and so it makes it harder to solve problems that way yes yes to solve them at least in a comprehensive and holistic way yeah kind of wanted to shift gears a bit and talk a bit about the research that you mentioned at the beginning of the episode so You talked a bit about how it talks about motherhood and memory and place as its main focuses. Um, Maybe you could tell us a bit more about your dissertation, maybe like what led you to choose it? Yeah, let me tell you, I'll tell you a little bit more about the dissertation and then try to connect it, I think, to some of the things we're talking about. So awesome. um, So my dissertation really, it comes from my background. I'm, I'm a Latinx woman. I'm Colombian. My mother's Colombian, my father's Brazilian. So 
Mm-hmm. Um, I've always been interested in migration and the stories of migration in my own family, mm-hmm. where we moved to and why and what that did. Um, it It's made me think a lot about themes of, you know, what does it mean to feel like you belong or, or what does it mean to try to belong when you were born in one place and migrated to another? Right. How do you negotiate identity and what feels like home? How do you make home? Um, so place is an important piece of that. It's an important piece of my research, um, but it also connects to some of the environmental issues that we, we were talking about and we're thinking about in that, you know, our relationships to place, environment, landscapes, all of those things, those are a critical part of our identity formation too. And mm-hmm. our relationships, you know, with our families, um, there are those connections there. I think a lot about motherhood in my particular dissertation. And, you know, our connections with our mothers are their connections through time. They are, they involve stories passed down matrilineally, you know, about home and place, but also land, mm-hmm. landscape. Um, and so those stories give us a more holistic view of changes over time, maybe to land and landscape and environment. And here's where you could think about, you know, Terry Tempest Williams. She's a, I, I teach her in my class. She's an amazing writer. Um, she's an environmentalist, um, but also she is, uh, she has, let's see, she has a background in religion as well. Mm-hmm. She has this beautiful memoir called Refuge. And in this memoir, she talks about her family's really deep seated connection to the Great Salt Lake area in Utah. This is land where her family is from, from generations. I think she's like a fourth or fifth generation Mormon. Oh, wow. Woman. Yeah. And so, but the book is also about, um, it's not just about this ecosystems around the Great Salt Lake that she has this beautiful reverence for. It's also about her family's exposure to the nuclear testing that was going on in the fifties in that area. And it weaves in this story of, of, her mom dying of cancer as well, which likely was an outcome of, of the radiation exposure. So, right. you know, this book is, it's about um, those connections, mothering, uh, land connections, mm-hmm. um, environmentalism, bringing all those together. So, so yeah, that's, that's a little bit about my dissertation. And mm-hmm. I think these themes, they, they do kind of weave together family, place, identity, all of those things and environment. When I was thinking about memory and place, I kind of wanted to bring up the point of how certain areas might be prioritized over another, depending on what people think about them. Like in the last episode, we talked a little bit about last chance tourism, which is basically the feeling the like overwhelming need to go visit somewhere before it disappears. So like people might be much more worried about Venice than they might be over a really important forest to our ecosystem because people have more memories and more nostalgia tied to that place. Yeah, memory. Memory is powerful. It's it's it plays a role in helping us understand sometimes how quickly environmental changes are happening. Um, so there is, I think there's a positive role that memory plays in terms of thinking about the environment. I'm thinking here about, for example, some of the student essays. That I that are really moving are um, when I ask my students to write nature nature essays. 
sometimes, or a lot of the time, actually, my students write about these places that were very meaningful to them, like a backyard or, Mm -hmm. you know, like this little green space near where they lived as kids. And so the memory of that is really nostalgic, like you said, and important. And then um, as they return home, as they move away to college and then return home and that land is very much changed Mm -hmm. by environmental impacts, it's it's really... um, yeah, they, they write about that in really powerful ways. Um, I think also, though, to your question, more specifically, memory can romanticize certain places um, mm-hmm. and maybe contribute to narratives that make it so that certain areas, you know, get prioritized in terms of restoration. Also, certain species maybe get prioritized in terms of being on endangered species lists and things like that. So I think memory can can do that. It can play maybe not so so positive a role. But I think I just wanted to add a question that I don't have the answer to or something that maybe we should think about as well, mm-hmm. which is whose memory, like whose memory mm-hmm. is being, you know, prioritized over another and, and how does that make how does that contribute to what decisions get made about that piece of land? You know, is it our is it the is it a collective, you know, um, I don't know, like, is it a collective U.S. national identity, uh, you know, that comes very much from the dominant culture in the U.S. about, like, national parks, and then that contributes to or leads to how those get managed or handled or prioritized, you know? What about the memory of... Um, marginalized groups, you know, native groups and, and connections to different places. So that's that's something that that I think about when I think about this question. I feel like that kind of ties back into giving people voices because depending on who can communicate their opinions or their memories or what they feel is important to them the most, that's sort of what we as a general society choose to focus on, which can do a lot of good, but can also be a huge issue at the same time. Okay, so kind of keeping all of these ideas in mind, um, how do you think that your background in both literature and sociological ideas, as well as like dabbling in environmental ideas, how do you think that that's kind of affected you as an individual? Let's see. It's it's affected me a lot. I mean, it's 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 kind of it's changed my career trajectory. You know, I. I didn't think that I would want to continue teaching, you know, environmental writing moving forward, but now I do. I do. I see the I I see not just the use of it, but it just it feels really meaningful mm-hmm. to me because I think we get to do some things in that composition course that focuses on the environment that maybe is not happening so much in 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 other, like students might not get to, yeah, like um, get to read the text that we read, for example. We're, we're lucky in the POE. So I was teaching specifically in the POE. So the students that I interact with in the program on the environment are obviously all very much inundated and, and in the field of environmental studies. But I think too of like, of being in, a, in an English department and continuing to teach environmental literatures in an English department. You know, it's interesting. Um, I'm actually 
TAing right now for a wonderful class. And I just want to shout it out because it's really great. It's it's cross-listed. It's at the University of Washington. It's taught by Professor Gary Handwerk, and it's a science and literature course, a wonderful course. And um, we read great writing, environmental writing in that course. But Professor Handwerk also always makes sure to, to have Silent Spring on the mm -hmm. syllabus. Rachel Carson's, you know, um, Silent Spring of the 60s, right? And when he teaches it, he asks the question to the class. And the question is, how many of you have read this before? It shocks me how few students have read this. I mean, it's crazy. It's like out of a class of 60, maybe two people will raise their hand. Yep. And this is Rachel Carson. This is, she's like speaking of motherhood. She's the mother of the environmental movement in the United States. <laughs> like, um, you know, to, to, for students not to be exposed to Rachel Carson is, is crazy to me. So, so yeah, I could go on and on, but basically it's, it's impacted me in that I want to continue teaching these kinds of classes and continue exposing students who may not otherwise be exposed to wonderful people like Terry Tempest Williams or Rachel Carson or Dorsetta Taylor. I can definitely see the impact already from your teaching because when I took your class last year in communications, I think that we read like two or three excerpts from Rachel Carson and that's the only like bit of her writing that I've ever read. So I do think that the exposure to students is really important. And then um, we talked a bit about place and the impact of that. And I kind of wanted to connect the imagery and emotions that students, especially coming home from college, like you mentioned, feel when they come back to their childhood home and things have kind of changed. So that ties into a bit of climate grief or eco-anxiety and it's suddenly like dawning on them like, oh, the environment is changing. It's not just something that's happening thousands of miles away. It's something that's happened to me close to home. So I wanted to know your thoughts on climate grief specifically and how it can impact our motivations, sort of like how we see it, whether it's from somewhere far away, like in the Amazon, or if it's in our childhood backyard, and whether or not that impacts whether or not we want to be an advocate for the environment or for our communities and kind of engage in a sustainable way. Yes. Climate grief. Oh, man, I have definitely experienced <laughs> and continue to experience variations of climate grief. Um, also, I just wanted to say, if you haven't already read anything or listened to anything by Jennifer Atkinson, she's wonderful. Um, mm -hmm. You have. Oh, yeah, you have. Yeah. <laughs> yes, I forgot. <laughs> we listened um, to her in your class last we year, too. Did. <laughs> oh, that's right. You're right. You're right. Jennifer Atkinson, she's um, a professor at the University of Washington. Her work deals specifically with this topic of climate grief, and she has a wonderful podcast that kind of explores that topic. It's called Facing It. So mm -hmm. um, that would be something that, you know, would be, uh, I highly recommend, I recommend. Um, but in terms of climate change, uh, climate grief, I would say, um, I think that the problem is, you know, climate grief is there. It's mm -hmm. debilitating in my experience. It's exhausting. It, um, it absolutely kind of, 
it's hard to kind of conceive of actually doing something to tackle problems when they are so, you know, climate change in particular, it's so existential. It's just like, it's overwhelming. And so um, I think though that one of the things that we can do is to acknowledge climate grief. And Jennifer Atkinson talks about this. That is sort of the first step is acknowledge that, huh, how come, how come, you know, in my particular case, when it, you know, another piece comes on the news about like another chunk of whatever, and then, you know, ice broke off or, you know, species, you know, large scale ecosystem collapse, I quickly flip the channel or, you know, <laughs> or, it, you know, so I think just like acknowledging and naming that is huge. Okay. This is climate grief. These are the feelings that are happening. This is normal. Grief mm -hmm. is normal. Jennifer talks about that too. It's normal to return to a childhood home, see how changed it is and feel whatever feelings come up about that, you know? Mm -hmm. So I think those pe those pieces are key. Um, I think, I think also, I'll just add one last thing to this. Being in community about climate grief is also really important. Like mm -hmm. when, when, for example, we can have a conversation in our class about, oh, you're, you also experienced. Okay. So like me too. I also like <laughs> when people start to talk about it, they kind of are not alone in their own individual climate grief. And that feels better. Being in community about it feels like, okay, so this is a thing. It's grief. It's happening. And mm -hmm. now we can kind of, we've got our community. Let's figure out what we can do to kind of do some things. Yeah. yeah. It's especially important, I think, when you're a student, because in my case, at least, I didn't even know that climate grief or any climate emotions were a thing. I, but I remember being in middle school or elementary school or like however young and like seeing things on TV and just being like really anxious and frustrated. And I thought that I wouldn't be able to do anything about it. And that was just kind of like a fact of life. So being able to teach people that one, their emotions have a name and two, they're not alone is really important. Yes. Yes. Yeah. And then the last question that I have for you is um, sort of branching off of my previous question. And it's that, do you think that our like general, like unwillingness to necessarily be an advocate and take that step forward to engage with our community comes from a lack of knowledge about the environment where we don't know how to put a name to things or an overload of information where we just keep seeing things that are flooding into our minds and it's too much? It's a good question. I think the answer is complicated. Um, I think it depends on who the we is, but mm -hmm. I think in general, no, I don't think it's a lack of, of knowledge okay. um, that's preventing us. Yeah, I, I, I think I 90% agree with what I just said. Okay. <laughs> but here's what I'm thinking about. Like, like look no further than Rachel Carson, you know, we've been talking about her this, this whole time, sort of, um, she was sounding the alarm mm -hmm. since the sixties about, you know, the, the highly detrimental effects of biocides and, you know, chemicals like DDT. Right. Um, but the problem is if she's not getting read, 
right? Mm-hmm. If, she's, if students aren't being exposed to her, then that knowledge, then maybe in that way, there is a little bit of a lack of knowledge or maybe lack of exposure to knowledge. Mm-hmm. Maybe that's how I would put it. Knowledge yeah. that's already out there. Yeah. Um, so I think there's that. I think I want to bring back the piece about there is sort of knowledge here and there, but it's about seeing the pattern and connecting the dots, right? So that kind of interdisciplinary work of like looking back and saying, oh, this is how these pieces connect together. And these, this is why climate change is happening because of all of these different things, the roots in colonialism, the, you know, carbon, whatever, all of these different things are coming together to make this problem, right? Mm-hmm. So there's interdisciplinary issues. Um, I think though, there, there may be a little bit of an overload of information. You might be right about that. Um, I think that at a certain point, what we need is maybe not one more graph, you know, one more ex- more exposure to that like carbon graph of the parts per million, you know, that's, you know, cause like, I think that has circulated a lot and I don't think it's doing anything. Mm-hmm. <laughs> so, so it's like, so that's a piece of information. Um, and, and there are those like, you know, like climate change reports and things, there's that kind of information that maybe together can be like overload. What we need is a distilling of that information and then a translating of that information into stories and into um into yeah i would say stories that that communicate what needs to be communicated and mm-hmm. give us actionable steps forward right yeah um, yeah sort of breathing new life into older stories like silent spring because I feel like with younger generations today, we sort of have an aversion from reading anything that we consider a classic because we're like, oh, that's going to be too hard to read. It's going to be boring. I don't want to read it. And so finding a way to communicate those ideas in a way that's easy to understand and new for people is might be what we need. I like that. I like that idea a lot. Yeah. I like what you said about breathing new life into. And maybe that too is something that I'm thinking about in terms of teaching Rachel Carson, you know, like bringing Rachel Carson to the students, but also like, how does Rachel Carson tie directly into what is going on today? And and how can I make Rachel Carson be in conversation with the Rachel Carsons of today, you know, who, who are saying things and doing things. It might not be in like a book form or whatever, like Rachel Carson did, but who are producing videos and, and blogs and podcasts and, and, um, and activism, you know, um, in ways that are, that are important and that tie to, to some of those classic, classics mm-hmm. that you were saying, like Rachel Carson. Exactly. Because the importance of Silent Spring lies in how it communicated new ideas to the public. How spraying chemicals to control insect populations could also kill birds that feed on dead or dying insects, and essentially show her audience that chemicals travel through the food chain as well as the environment, and has the ability to seriously impact the human population as well. The story Carson wrote was fiction, but she drew from many real communities where the use of DDTs negatively impact the local environment. And... Just for some context, DDTs are a chemical compound that were originally developed as an insecticide, known for its environmental impacts. In her book, 
Carson asks her audience to think critically about their government's role in their environmental action, encouraging a social revolution where the individual could express their needs and be heard. The book was a deciding factor in the discontinued usage of DDTs, and her impact allowed the general public to feel included because of her accessible and easy to understand writing. Absolutely. And I, I would just add in just like, it took a little while, right? I think, um, because I think DDT wasn't, yeah, it wasn't banned until about a decade after yeah. Spring was published. But, and then some of the reaction was, what does this woman scientist have <laughs> to say? You know, like, who, mm -hmm. let's not listen to her. She's just a lady, you know? So <laughs> there was a lot of that. And then the chemical industry fighting her and stuff like that. But, but ultimately, yes, it made an impact. It continues to make an impact. Um, and so, yeah, yeah. I, do you have any closing thoughts you want to add? Oh, my goodness. I just think <laughs> that, you know, um, I, I would say I, I'm thinking a lot about the last two questions you asked and about mm -hmm. how do we how do we continue this work of engaging in environmental activism and thinking about environmental issues and doing something about it. Because um, it is exhausting. It is exhausting. There is climate grief. There is a lot of sadness. But I think there's also a lot of power in community. Certainly, you know, it, it feels good right now to talk to you about these issues, you know, and to know that people are listening to this and mm -hmm. also thinking about these issues. So, um, so there's that. And also along the way, you know, don't forget to take care of yourself as you continue to engage in, in climate change activism and like environmental stuff. And also nurture your, you know, nurture your own connections to however you see the environment and however you connect to the environment, right? So, um, connecting intellectually totally is one thing by reading environmental texts, but also experiential connections, you know, like the walks you take and whatever you define to be nature. If you're a hiker, if you're just, if you're like a, um, like a backpacker, if you play sports outside in parks and whatever it might be, just, just really nurture those relationships and, um, and, and hold on to them. Right. I think that that's a wonderful note to leave off on. Thank you so much. Thank you, Belle. This was wonderful. That was episode four of the Common Cause for Sustainability podcast miniseries, Growing Up Green, brought to you by the University of Washington Bothell and Cascadia College. Thanks again for listening. You can find more about our sustainability efforts through our websites, uwb.edu slash sustainability and cascadia.edu slash BASSP. See you next time.